Welcome back to the program. While we live in a culture enveloped in sex, topics of sexuality don't always come easy to our understanding or to our conversation. It has taken generations for gays and lesbians to achieve their full measure of acceptance, and there is still work to be done. Same-sex marriage is finally beginning to gather a majority constituency. Yet the world of transgender people is yet to achieve anything near full equality or understanding. Yet as we understand more about it, as we begin to see it up close and personal inside our own families and friends, perhaps that acceptance will evolve. There is no more powerful example of this than the story that esteemed film critic Molly Haskell tells about the transformation of her own brother. Molly Haskell is a nationally recognized film critic, the author of three books of film criticism. Her book, From Reverence to Rape, The Treatment of Women in the Movies, is widely considered a classic study of women's roles in film. It is my pleasure to welcome Molly Haskell to the program today to talk about her memoir, My Brother, My Sister, Story of a Transformation. Molly Haskell, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, and thanks for the very nice introduction. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. In many ways, no matter how progressive we are, no matter how liberal we think we are and open to things that are going on, the world of, of transgender people is still an unknown territory. It still shocks us, as it did when you found out about your brother. You're, you're absolutely right. In fact, it really is interesting. It is the one thing that still does shock. It's just the, the outermost limit of not even understanding because we can't understand it. That's It's just beyond understanding. And I was totally shocked when my brother, 59 years old, came to New York and told me he had gender dysphoria. And I'm somebody who has always been examining roles, uh, as my first book indicates, uh, gender roles especially, uh, male-female roles. And this absolutely threw me for a loop. Um, there were just so many questions. I just had no I'd, I'd read about it, but I didn't know. It was, I couldn't understand why he was doing it at this late date. There were just a million questions that um, I think some of them I never will understand, just what causes it or where it comes from or why some people, or it comes earlier or later in the form it takes. But I did come to understand that it's totally overpowering, that it's not a choice in the normal sense of the word, that it's not something you become, that what it is is really bringing your outer self into line with your inner self. I mean, what we saw as a man, he more and more and more experienced as a, being a woman. That was who he was inside. One of the things that's so remarkable is how little indication there was that this had been something he was struggling with for years, that, that even as you look back on his whole life, had two marriages, kids, stepkids, it was really very hard to find uh, markers along the way. It really was. He was such a, it was just a, a model per He was just a wonderful person, responsible. He'd been fantastic with my mother when she was ill, had, as you say, two wonderful wives and good marriages in every sense. Um, a, a real stand-up guy. And even after I started looking, there still weren't clues. There was no effeminacy of any kind, no sense of struggle. I mean, he was such a calm, I mean, maybe this should have been a tip-off, but you never know, but <laughs> he just, he was a calm and poised person, not very social. I mean, not unsocial, very easy with people, and yet kept in both marriages pretty much to himself, which may be, you know, the things that you can look back on, and they weren't clues exactly, but they take on meaning afterward. Like, for instance, he had this habit of always picking at his fingers. 
and they would be raw and almost bleeding. And I said, did this have anything to do with it? He said, yeah, I was trying to get out of my male skin. I mean, that, that's how he came to understand it. And the, the, he was fantasizing all the time, and more and more so. This is one of the characteristics is the, the whole thing, the urge just gets more powerful, unlike sex, which diminishes with age. This, or sometimes and mostly, um, this gets stronger and stronger. It's as if you don't want to die in the wrong body. And there was, a, there was this English folk singer who died recently, he, Louisa Jo Killen, who'd been Louis Killen, and at the age of 76, when he had a cancer diagnosis, he went through with surgery and became a woman. It was like he couldn't die in the, in the, in the male body. You somehow have to get that outer in alignment with the inner. Do we make a mistake in trying to understand this, trying to come to grips with our acceptance of it, thinking about it in the same context that we think about gay and lesbian and bisexual issues? Is it something really different in many ways? Absolutely. I think that's a very good point because, anyway, I think LGBT, I think it's a necessary organization, but I think it's strange bedfellows all the way through. I mean, gays and lesbians don't really have that much in common, and transgender is something that that nobody understands. Gay men, both gay and straight, have a very hard time with it for obvious reasons. I mean, it's it's the whole image of, of mutilation and, and losing this, this symbol and reality of privilege in, in society, all of, the, all of these things. And all of us, because we, th- we think that we're born male or female, and then that's immutable. The idea that this is subject to change is just something we, we can't get our minds around. So absolutely, I think it's so different, and it's why people are freaked out. And I guess what I wanted to do was kind of de-weird it, make it less weird and less strange, It'll never be, I mean, I think you, you have to say at the one and the same time, I'll never quite understand it unless they find some kind of biological marker maybe or something like that. And even then, it's still hard to understand. And they haven't as yet found anything like that. Um, but at the same time, I see how real and powerful and and just irrefutable it is. It has to, there was no way, it's not about finding ordinary happiness. It's not about choosing in the ordinary sense it's just one of the things uh, ellen said when she read one of the um, one uh, manuscript of the book and i added it in a later version she said when i look back and i described the different surgeries and the electrolysis and the lessons in deportment and all of this and she says when i look back i can't believe i did this it's like i was possessed and, you know, I think that's a really good word. It is almost like some supernatural takeover. <laughs> it's just like, you know, you're, you're, you're inhabited by an alien. It's not alien. I shouldn't use that term because that makes it sound more freakish than it is. But it is almost something sort of uncanny and, and beyond understanding. And this is no simple process. I mean, you talk about the seven-year-long journey involving many surgeries and a lot of risk along the way. A huge amount of risk. I mean, not just the surgery, which on a physical level, on the pain of electrolysis, which is ongoing, um, is the is the fear of losing the people that you love, uh, of losing your place in society. I mean, my brother was self-employed, so he didn't have to worry about prejudice in the workplace, but all these things, and then how are you going to turn out? Because the most, the, the, the only, the chief and primary goal is to be a plausible woman, 
to be able to walk down the street and not have people look and not have some little kid cry out, hey, mommy, is that a man or a woman? It's, this is what they all live in fear of. So you learn, um, Ellen says it's, it's like 20 cues for femininity that you learn, and it has to do with the, the hair and the voice and the makeup and the gestures and the walk and even not overdoing it, not becoming a parody of femininity. So you have all these cues, and if you... If you miss one, if you then your your cover is blown. So this is the fear you have, and you, I think it's one reason that at least Alan Lee. I know there are others who feel differently, but Alan. I mean, this is another division among transsexuals of whether to to join a, to, to to solidarity with transsexuals and to become an activist. Well, I think so many transsexuals don't want that because they don't want to stand out. They just want to be accepted as women, as ordinary women. <clears throat> so that can offend people too, and uh, and women say, I mean, I think early on maybe they're not saying this anymore, but the reaction was, how dare they? You know, how dare they say they're women? They haven't had to go through all the things we've gone through, the menarche and the menopause and childbirth and all of this. So they resented them as pretend women, and at least gradually, I think people are understanding. That they're not trying. I mean, I remember when Renee Richards, Richard Raskin became Renee Richards, and I was a tennis player, and all the people at the club would say, oh, now all the men are going to become women so they can play in the women's tournament. You know? <laughs> so there was a lot of suspicion, and that didn't happen. One of the interesting paradoxes in this is that so much of the talk about sexuality is often about trying to achieve authenticity. And yet in many ways, as you talk about it and as we see these experiences, image becomes so much a part of it beyond the authenticity. Yes, yes. I think that's such a good point because it's something we are very ambivalent about and especially women we've come through this whole thing of not wanting to be just seen as sex objects and wanting to be authentic and and and, and subjects rather than objects and agents and all of that and then to suddenly have this whole group of people who are obsessed with appearance and that's very disconcerting and but what it also what I think what's interesting is that the the transsexual is on the one is a paradox because on the one hand they're the the most outer edge of human experience, the most radical. And on the other, they're very conformist, in a sense, because they want to just become ordinary women and women even sort of classically dressed women and uh, all of that. And and they sort of have to do that for their for their plausibility as women, for their presentation. But presentation becomes so important. So, And sometimes I was irritated because we'd have to talk about hair all the time, about our hair, <laughs> you know. So this, is, this is, is something that's disturbing. But it also, you sort of think maybe authenticity is a, is a word that's, well, it means something important, and yet on the other hand, what does it mean exactly? Because we're changing all the time anyway. Marriages are changing. The people in them are changing. Uh, people, are, people live longer. They have second, third, fourth lives or, or jobs or, you know, just different identities. So I think the idea of one continuous authentic self may be out of date. Talk about it from a fantasy aspect. As you talk to Chevy slash Ellen, to what extent did he fantasize about this, and was it part of a fantasy life that he had before he he did it? Oh yes, in fact, that I think you've touched on the two most important words: image and fantasy. Fantasy here is not. I think sometimes 
in, in lay language, we think of fantasy as a daydream or something kind of light and uh, airy, but fantasy is something much deeper. And um, in this case, it's 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 the core of of his being, his passion. He lives as a woman inside, and this is not. This is increasing, and it wasn't always like this. And I think in the early days, he didn't quite know what it was because there was no word for it. He just knew he felt different, and he, when he was eight or nine, he wanted to try on my, snooping around in my closet, trying on my clothes. But he knew that was sissy, and he didn't. But was he gay? He just didn't know what it was. But as he, as people emerged, like Renee Richards and other people, he understood what that that was what it was, and at the same time. There was a word for it. There was a way of of experiencing it and feeling himself a woman. And he had a name and um, a shape. I'm sure he had. She she was. She got a wardrobe at one point, um, even though she couldn't really wear it. She could, except when she was by herself. So she would do all these things and paint her toenails and do very feminine things, and sort of in, in in compliance with this fantasy life that she was living, which increasingly, I think, as I see it, just became more and more powerful. It was a, it was a fantasy life that had to express itself, that it had to become the whole life. And was he aware of or, or embrace in any way other similar stories, people like Renee Richards and Jan Morris and others that, that he could... Oh, yeah, about? and Jennifer Boylan, um, he's not there. That was a real catalyst for her because it came out um, and it, it, it seemed to express it had been um, Jan, anyway Jennifer Boylan was a teacher and writer at Colby College and her journey was I think almost like a bible for, for Chibi becoming Ellen and so much that she had experienced was what Ellen was experiencing so that was a huge comfort to her and she never, I don't think I think now there would be groups that she might join, although, again, I think transsexuals are, are, are wary of that because they just want to be real women or what they think of as real women. Or, and I shouldn't say what they think of. They want to be real women. It's, again, another word, uh, real and normal become problematic, just like image and just like authenticity because what it, it makes you ask, I guess this is one of the things that's unsettling, too. What is normal? What is a real woman? I mean, here is this person who has a vagina and, you know, the whole, all the accoutrements and thinks of herself as real. So then I think we're bound to, too. But this is a, this is a little, um, it's difficult. Tell us a little bit about the family reaction, your reaction aside, the, his wife and the kids, and, and how did they yeah. respond? Well, the first wife, uh, Chivy broke up with, thinking he could do something about it. This was in the 70s. And then he found, first of all, there was just no information. There was no Internet. The, the therapist he saw didn't know anything about it. His mother was still alive. He had a son who subsequently died. So it was impossible. So then he just decided against it. Then when he met the woman who would become his second wife, he just felt he fell in love, and he was sure he could suppress it, and he promised her he would, but he had no idea how how powerful it was going to become. So when and they had a they had a good marriage, and and she knew about it, but she also felt that he could. And I think now, if that happened, red flags would go up. But at the time, neither one knew enough about it to to realize how how strong the the, the urge would be, and. 
so she had two children, and they were very, it was very close to them. He was basically, um, they never hardly ever saw their, their biological father, so he was the father. And this was, of course, the hardest thing of all, telling her and them and, and their and and she was brokenhearted, devastated, angry, everything. And her whole vision of their future was suddenly shattered. They she they, they were going to travel together and do this and that together, and that was gone. So she just absolutely couldn't get over it. She couldn't even see Ellen for a, over a year because it just was too painful. And finally, the children said, "Well, mother, you just got to do this. We want to because by this time they had had a relationship." with her and they were I think they were dealing with it pretty well the son was having a much harder time because he was the father figure that he'd never had and oh, that was pretty pretty upsetting and of course they worried for their mother but so they did have a reconciliation and they became good friends I think the book has shaken things up I'm afraid because it just brought it all back so I'm um, I think the guilt is something that that Ellen has had, will always have, of of hurting Eleanor, and now I guess I'm in on that too, having written the book. But I just felt it was something I had to do, and she, of course, felt that what she had to do, and she'd been such a, a wonderful husband and father, and done so much for the, them, um, and she felt it was, he felt it was now his turn. Talk a little bit about how she feels today having gone through this having done this is there a sense of relief a sense of accomplishment a sense of of fulfillment that oh, was fantasized totally about? well you know, the minute i saw she finally agreed she wanted to control every aspect of it so she didn't want to see a picture she wanted just to us uh, to open each person to open the door and there she would be but um, I think it was Eleanor's daughter said, look, come on, we need to have a little preparation to get ready, so please send us a picture. So she finally agreed to do that. And I, I opened that with trembling hands, and it was just this smile on her. Was just, I just could tell by that picture that she was happy. And she has just been radiantly happy. She's just ha- sort of happy all the time, and she's so pleased when I mean, she uh, is uh, vain in the sense that it's so important for her to look good as a woman so that when people compliment her she just lights up with that and but she's funny about it and she makes jokes about herself and can be i mean she'll do a little routine where because the voice is a real problem as it is for a lot of transsexuals and she has this high-pitched voice that she will call on the phone and make it say make a reservation someplace and she'll call up and say hello this is ellen she and she does this whole thing ellen hampton and and, and this sort of, and she spells out her name, and, and they say, well, "Okay, we'll look for. Uh, uh, thank you, sir. We'll see you." <laughs> so they they read her as it is on the phone, and that that I think she's she's funny about it, and she laughs about it. But I think at the same time, it's it it hurts each time something like that happens. But so far, there's been nothing really ugly or or hostile. At least I mean, you never know what people are thinking, but nobody has done that. And she's made friends at this place where she lives. It's a sort of mountain condo, and they've never known her as anything but a woman. They can't imagine her as anything else. So it's been pretty successful. Has there been anything that you've seen in in movies and popular culture? I mean, certainly we think of things like Tootsie and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, that really captures the essence of, of what you've experienced? Well, there's been nothing, that, nothing I've seen that goes through the whole tra- transition because it's a, quite a remarkable arc that happens, and little by little, um, 
as she, I mean, I say to people, I, I mean, it just, just occurred to me after I wrote the book, because of course I'm talking about my brother, my sister's story of a transformation, his transformation into her, but it, it's been mine too, because I've been transformed by watching her do this into the, into someone who not only accepts, but just loves and celebrates this new creature, this new creature who still has a lot of my brother in her, thank goodness. So I, but I think the one that comes closest that I think of, um, well, she loved, because she would look at movies as a source of just, just uh, something that would nourish her fantasy, and she loved Switch with Ellen Barkin and Victor Victoria and certain movies like that. The one that came out after, just after she, I think, was had her surgery, was Transamerica with Felicity Huffman. And what, what that had was this scene, she's a male to female, and she's in that year where you present as a woman before you have the surgery and just to make sure you know you can do it you're a good candidate and she's traveling in middle america and she's at this diner and in the next booth is a mother and child and the little child turns to her mother and says is that a man or a woman in the next booth and she's just crushed and i think this is the kind of thing that really captures what the fear the fear is and I think also, I'm, in reading the reviews of that movie, there's still a lot of, I real, I recognize a lot of prejudice that maybe I would have had too if I hadn't gone through this, of seeing the transsexual as a kind of pretend woman. They, people want it to be this sort of wonderfully beautiful androgene, like Tilda Swinton or something that challenges the borders, all of that. Well, this is somebody who just wants to be the opposite sex doesn't want to be a symbol of gender fluidity or anything. So I think sort of culturally hip people can't quite accept or, you know, enjoy that because it seems, again, to be some kind of parody of femininity to them rather than a challenge to it. But it is in, in its own way, I think. Will it help at some point if we understand more about it from a physiological, a psychological, a brain imaging point of view? Will, will that give us more insight? Will that help? Well, that's a really good question because I think gradually, and I, I want to talk to some, there's some experts that have a grounding in this in neuroscience and whatnot, but they're thinking that it's, because they're finding with more sophisticated brain imaging that there really are huge areas of the brain that are very different in, in the genders at birth and in, in all different um, areas. And I think I had always suspected, as just from what I'd read, that it was something that happened in utero, but it may be something that is actually more um, in, the, in the early years or maybe it's different for different ones. So I do think there will be more, uh, sort of more refinement of what we know about it. And I think, yes, I think, I mean, I do think homosexuality became more accepted when people just saw over and over again. And, you know, with people, they knew people who were, and first it was exotic and strange and, and people didn't want to think about it. And then there were more and more. And then they also, there were more books about how they're born that way. And in fact, this is one of the things that uh, some of this, brain imaging does show is sexual orientation is 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 probably biological but um yeah i think although in a way there's a kind of sort of respect if it's biological whereas if it's not we seem to think it can be something that can be turned on and off and i don't think that's true either so i think it, it's a it's a harder to understand if it's something like this where 
we think, well, the person could have done otherwise and spared a lot of people's feelings. But somehow we have to accept and believe that it, it could, it, they couldn't have done otherwise. They had to do this. And that is hard. And yes, if there's some kind of scientific backing for it, it's going to make it easier to accept. But what if there isn't? Um, what if it remains something that's kind of volatile and uncertain? I think we still have to, I think as more and more people see it happening, then they will just have to accept that it's something that is not um, done done lightly and could have been otherwise. Molly Haskell, her memoir is My Brother, My Sister, Story of a Transformation. It's just out from Viking. Molly, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. We'll take a break. Okay. I'll be right back. 